Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So how mad do Midwesterners get when you confuse Dayton and Toledo? Okay, so to start with, I, I have to recognize the sensitivity of the subject given that I am from Michigan and we're talking about Ohio. That said, I think the real question for most people who live on the East Coast is, is it a stop on the turnpike? If it's a stop on the turnpike, we know it, Toledo. Mm -hmm. If it's not a stop on the turnpike, Dayton, then we don't actually have any idea where it is. That's why it's so easy to confuse Dayton and Toledo if you're from the East Coast. Which for listeners should know, that's what the president of the United States did when expressing his condolences for the shooting in Toledo, Ohio, which of course didn't happen, but was in Dayton. And can we point out that Dayton is basically in Kentucky. Can can, can I just ask a question in defense of the president that's been bothering me since this whole thing happened? If you're reading on a teleprompter and there is Texas and Dayton and El Paso and you're not a very organized mind, you've got the T, you've got the city in Ohio, and you've got a city that ends in O. And maybe it just came out totally. So Stop I, normalizing this, Ben. So I think we're talking about some bare minimum stuff here, like knowing the name of the city. Yeah. Um, I, I, the I don't think we're expecting too much of a president. No, to, no, no. I, I, I just like I, – I, we're definitely not expecting too much of it. I was just trying to figure out how it would happen. And I was wondering if he may have gotten the if, – if that stop trying to explain it, Ben. All right. Just stop. You're going to hurt yourself. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the It's the Terrorism Stupid edition. I'm Shane Harris. I've never been to Toledo, just for the record. I've never been to Dayton. I've been to Toledo, Spain. through Toledo? That's the Um, question. No, I don't think I've even driven. I've really, my Ohio knowledge is deficient. Clearly. Uh, It clearly is. My southern Ohio knowledge is deficient. You're more of a northern My northern Ohio knowledge is pretty good. I've flown through Dayton. I've spent time in Toledo. Also, Ohio is like weirdly close to Washington and New York. And like it, it, it dawned on me that like geographically, it's just not that far away. Like I think of it like you know, somewhere Shane, where Montana should be. They're, they're just there. like you and me. Really, they want the same things for their children. Do that we do. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see about that. Uh, real I, Americans, guys. Real Americans. Real Americans. Real Americans. Uh, I'm here in the New Jungle studio with Tamara Kaufman Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. I'm sitting in a different chair than I normally do. It is. Did I tell you guys, by the way, I was recording a podcast? It was, a, I mean, it, was, it wasn't live, but it was close to it about John Ratcliffe last week. Oh. Uh, and like while we're doing it, while Trump tweets that he's yanking him. And it was with this, this great guy, Dave Marish, who was a longtime broadcast journalist. And it was just like, you know, like, F it, we'll do it live. <laughs> we just rolled <laughs> Never with mind. it. Never mind. It was great. And we just kept rolling. It was awesome. On the podcast this week, 
A series of shootings renews the discussion and debate around domestic terrorism. The U.S.-China trade war raises big questions about America's role as a global power, and the United States faces a make-or-break moment in Syria. So let's start with the big news of the week, obviously. I don't want to be too cynical about these kinds of things, but I feel like the way maybe I view this so much as a journalist, it seems so often the way that the coverage of these awful events happens is kind of a rinse and repeat where there's sort of a moment of initial coverage, figuring out what happened, learning about the victims, coverage of why aren't we doing anything about it, what's different, and then it sort of fades. A notable distinction this time, and it's not the first time it's happened, is that we are having this discussion around why aren't we applying the kinds of resources that we understand to apply towards foreign terrorist organizations like al-Qaeda and ISIS, which have been extremely effective, I think you might argue. Why aren't we applying that towards groups in the United States that are clearly a rising threat. There's a lot of data to back this up. And clearly in a case like the shooting in El Paso, Ben, where it seems to me to just meet the statutory and political and common understanding of terrorism. This was an individual who purposely uh, targeted a group of people for what he clearly said were political purposes, hoping for a political outcome. So I guess one question is, why wouldn't we just call this terrorism? And if we are, what does that allow the government to do that it hasn't done about these kinds of events in the past? All right. So there's a bunch of embedded questions there and they have – I think it's worth breaking out a few different things. One is sort of sociologically, culturally, normatively, should we call it terrorism? The answer to that is a kind of no-brainer in any reasonable sense of the term. In a colloquial sense, this is terrorism for reasons that you don't need to explain to anybody. The problem arises in the difference between foreign and domestic terrorism uh, approaches legally for two reasons, and they're different from one another. So one is that when you are dealing with foreign international terrorism, you are generally dealing with groups of people and organized groups that to one degree or another, you can deal with in the foreign policy authorities of the government. And you don't, those groups don't generally have First Amendment rights. There's no right of association. And so you can do things like prescribing the interaction with the groups, either through sanctions, the IEPA sanctions, right? You're not allowed to do business with certain groups, or more dramatically, by prescribing uh, material support to the groups you know, and actually locking people up for engaging with the groups. You could never do that domestically. And the reason is the First Amendment. And so there is a sharp wall around the borders because we're allowed to regulate interactions with terrorist groups beyond our shores on the basis of sort of far, like treating them almost like countries, right? Just as they can pres- prohibit you from doing business with North Korea, they can prohibit you from doing business with al-Qaeda. They can't prohibit you from doing business with the Proud Boys um, because of all kinds of First Amendment rules domestically. So that's one reason. The second reason is that domestically, when this is well, a largely a nomenclature question, right? When you kill people domestically because you hate them, we tend to call that hate crimes. 
when you, even if it's organizational, right? What did the KKK do? We, we think they lynched people. And we tend to think that if they did all kinds of other bombings and stuff. We tend to think of that in the rubric of hate crimes. Internationally, we tend to call it terrorism. That is largely a nomenclature distinction that doesn't have a lot of great legal relevance. And then the final distinction, which is just a creature, again, it's a creature of legal nomenclature, but it's really important here, is that on the purely domestic terrorism side, if you use just, this is just where the statutes are in the federal code, if you use a bomb, or think about using a bomb, or plan to use a bomb, those are terrorism statutes. If you use a gun, those are going to be not terrorism statutes. In fact, they may even be state laws against murder. And so the general rule is all all of those broad issues come into play here, and and they amount to a pretty... I wouldn't say systematic, but pretty significant difference of emphasis, mostly not in investigative authority or in prosecutorial capacity, but symbolically a pretty substantial de-emphasis on the word terrorism in the crimes that are most likely to be local in you know, d- domestic and hate in origin as opposed to international and bomby in origin. So I want to step back from the legal nomenclature questions for a minute to address the broader policy question about how do we think about this domestic terrorism problem and how does it relate to international terrorism. And I think that there are a couple of dimensions that are emerging in the op-ed pages and the conversations, including a contribution to that debate this morning by uh, none other than the president of Brookings, John Allen, former head of the Global Coalition to Counter ISIS, writing with um, his successor in that role, Brett McGurk. And the first argument is simply that um, we need to devote the same level of attention and resources and political will to combating domestic white supremacist terrorism as we devote to defeating al-Qaeda and ISIS-like radical Islamist terrorism because the threat is no less. And in fact, in terms of violent incidents affecting Americans, it may even be greater. Um, that to me seems like a, a a very simple point, but an important one at a time when we continue to have a broader national conversation about winding down what we have called for two decades a global war on terror. We actually still do have a war on terror to fight. It's just that it, it may be more um, in a domestic arena. The second component, though, is then what tactics do you use? Do you apply the tactics of the global war on terror, the methods of the global war on terror to domestic white supremacist terrorism? And then obviously you get into the kinds of constraints that you were mentioning, Ben, in terms of free speech, First Amendment, but also like how effective are the sanctions authorities in these circumstances? And and here, you know, obviously it's it's sort of a crude argument to say, well, you know, we should just figure out who's talking about this bad ideology and shut them down before they can do anything bad. We have a constitution and a bill of rights that doesn't allow us to do that in the domestic arena. That would be dumb, just like we're not going to reopen Guantanamo for white supremacists. That's an idiotic idea. What do you but mean reopen? Guantanamo's <laughs> in the never it closed. Been, right. You know, but I do think there's... Is there there's, room at the end? But there is one for dimension... lots of bad dudes. 
I do think there's one dimension that we need to talk about, which is to what extent is this white supremacist terrorism not purely a domestic phenomenon? To what extent is it now understood as an international phenomenon? And we talked about this after New Zealand on the podcast. But, you know, if you look at the connections between the perpetrators of the uh, Andre Brevik, the shootings in Norway, New Zealand, Pittsburgh, you know, where on the internet these guys are sharing ideas, radicalizing themselves, you know, talking about what they're planning to do, who inspires them. There is an international dimension here. And so I, I think in a way this this sharp distinction that uh, that we've so far drawn between white supremacist terrorism being a domestic thing and Islamist terrorism being an international thing, it's a false distinction at this point. And if white supremacism is internationalizing, then doesn't that mean we should use some of those global war on terror tools to tackle it? So I think this gets at, you know, I, I know, Tammy, you were saying we should put aside sort of the, the legal nomenclature, but I actually think we have to start there to answer your question. And that's one point that I think was embedded, although not made explicit in Ben's comments, and that's that there's no such thing as a crime of domestic terrorism. That's not a standalone substantive offense. You can't be just charged with that. It's an element of other offenses. When Ben's talking about um, when you use a bomb, typically what you're being charged with is sort of use of weapons of mass destruction, which is a, a different sort of part of the statute. So a lot of the discussion about, you know, should we call people terrorists or not terrorists really is should we, char- like people get upset when people who shoot up a Planned Parenthood, uh, you know, aren't aren't charged with, with terrorism, that that feels like the government sort of isn't um, taking it as seriously. And what's at stake in the labels here, and domestic terrorism is, whenever the FBI comes out and says we're investigating this as domestic, domestic terrorism, it's because they're trying talking about a type of investigation they're allowed to conduct. What we're really what is actually at stake here is the involvement of the federal government or not. And so you know, is there a trigger here to sort of bring in federal authorities so that this isn't just a state uh, a state crime? You know, Ben was mentioning this, but ordinarily, you know, we do want the federal government involved in these very complex, you know, uh, violent events that have very complex investigations. But we usually don't need a new law or there's there's not really an argument that, well, we need a new law in order to establish federal jurisdiction. There's a way to get the feds to come in and do this. I do think that's what's different sort of that we're, what we're seeing. And frankly, I think we're seeing it because we're now having these mass shootings stacking up on top of one another. I mean, that's a little bit why the script is different this time. Because we haven't even had time to learn about the first round of victims before we're talking about, you know, more than a dozen people being killed or, or nine people being killed in Ohio. And and that's sort of a focus on, hey, do we need a new set of laws? Do we need to shift the focus for precisely the reason that, that Tammy was suggesting into the focus on right-wing extremism. Now, I agree with you that we are seeing sort of a more international element, although I don't know that it's of a character that necessitates the same kinds of tools and authorities and sort of the ability not just to understand where people are are getting their ideas, but how they are communicating and planning in such a way that the government actually needs to be able to identify those connections in order to prevent things. You know, it is interesting to see this sort of new focus on, well, we need more resources at DHS. We need more resources at the FBI because, you know, to focus on sort of right-wing extremism. People in both of those agencies have been ringing the alarm for a really long time about needing more focus. You know, this goes all the way back to the Obama administration. So anyone, you know, sort of suggesting that while well, Trump came in and undid this great system, no, there was never a great system to begin with. 
you know, that said, all of these policy discussions about how we're going to resource FBI and should we have a, a, a domestic terrorism standalone statute and what are the little policy tweaks, it's not going to make a difference because the reason why we're seeing this surge of right-wing violence is because we have a president of the United States that stands up and talks about immigrants being invaders, talks about send them back, laughs at rallies whenever people suggest shooting immigrants. And so, look, whether or not we want to debate, you know, is Trump a white supremacist or is Trump a racist? Racists think that Trump is racist. White supremacists think that Trump is a white supremacist. They are emboldened by him. And so really, no matter what we do at this lower level, it is going to be a drop in the bucket until we change the person who's in the Oval Office. And I just think we have to accept that as a reality, as a starting point well, one here. One thing that makes me think of, though, too, is, I mean, look, <clears throat> the, the Murrah Federal Building bombing, I forget how many more people. Obviously, there's, you know, there's, there's also a strain of this that predates Trump being in office. And it sounds like what we're kind of saying here is that the FBI, Homeland Security, even the intelligence community, I mean, we have, they have the investigative capacities and tools and techniques, right, to be able to understand networks and try and understand how they're going to act and be able to track weapons and all of these kinds of things. I mean, if this were an ISIS or an al-Qaeda attack in the United States and there were evidence that there were other al-Qaeda cells in the United States, different statutory authorities would get triggered that would allow them to do things and say, great, we have the playbook to go do that. So what we're talking about here is not like we don't have the tools. It's just the context in which we allow those government agencies to operate on this problem, right? And that seems like really fixable. Uh, Yes and no. So it's really fixable particularly if you don't mind living in a police state. Um, but all right. So, so let, let, okay. Let's, now, let's go back like three steps back from that then. Right. right? But like, so, yeah. so, no. So, so, so I actually think this problem is really hard. But, but let's start with the point that analytically from a point of view of capacity, you are absolutely right. We could, we could and to some extent, I'm sure this is happening – map the shit out of this these sets of networks. And if these were f- foreign groups based abroad, you know, interact, we would do that as a matter of intelligence gathering. And we would say we have a pervasive intelligence interest in this group of, you know, let's call it Austrian-based or Munich-based white supremacists, let's say we're in 1925, and we're just going to – we think that this may raise national security issues for us in the future. So we're just going to surveil the hell out of them, understand everybody they're talking to, and as long as they don't talk to U.S. persons, and when they do, by the way, you have some special authorities, but – you know. You can just map that stuff and watch them. And you don't want the United States government behaving that way domestically because that's called COINTELPRO, right? Where you say we have this interest in these leftist groups. We think they may be a threat. They may have Soviet links. So we're just going to watch them over long periods of time. I feel like this is still a really black and white conversation. No, no, no. This is the background legal principle. Like we have done what I just described and it gave rise to the system of constraints we have today. It gave rise to the church committee, right, where we just decided to treat domestic groups like we treat foreign groups. So we have a different rule domestically. And the different rule is you can't investigate somebody because of their political viewpoint, even no matter how horrid, you have to wait until there is a criminal predicate 
to investigate them. And it's got to be a federal criminal predicate if it's the federal government. So you have to look and see that a crime has been committed, may have been committed, may be in the process of being committed, or that a national security threat may be being invoked. So here's the question. And here's, I think, where it gets really hard. One, you want to say, we know these people are going to commit crimes. They are committing crimes. And to the extent that you can you believe there is ongoing criminal activity, you have lots of authority to investigate them under state law, under federal law, under hate crimes law, under terrorism law, and under all kinds of other – and conspiracy law. You've got a lot of capacity. But the moment you are just watching people in order to watch people, you've got a problem domestically that you would not have overseas. Okay, so quickly, number one, yes, all these other authorities exist, but there's always a resource trade-offs problem in domestic law enforcement, whether you're talking local, state, or federal. And so saying we need to treat this the way we treat the international terrorism threat in the sense of we need to devote more resources to it, it needs to be a disproportionate share of what we're doing in domestic law enforcement, you know, that to me is a discussion worth having. Yes. Number two... It strikes me that we have, in the context of fighting Islamist terrorism, engaged in a whole lot of what you just described as broader intelligence collection in domestic contexts, not necessarily in a covert manner, but by going to community leaders and institutions and saying, we're concerned about radicalization in your particular community. We want you to work with us. We want to build relationships with you. We want to talk about interrupting radicalization. We want to talk to you about what to do when you have a sense that people are planning violence. Why aren't we doing that? Okay. So if the, if the question is, is more commitment appropriate, more resource commitment appropriate, the answer is yes. If the question is, are there things that we have done in the uh, foreign political context, international terrorism context, that lessons that we could learn uh, for the domestic context, the answer to that is probably yes, including some of that community engagement activity. But the, my, my point is that the background principles of law are actually different and they do constrain you in, in some very real ways. Okay, so we're talking about one domestic war. Let's talk about another one. Trade. That's not – that's Tra an international war. Trade is foreign policy, Shane. Okay, well, it's sort of a war at home-ish. <clears throat> you're a soybean <laughs> farmer. It sure is. Or if you're dealing with feral hogs running over your cornfield. Oh, gonna, man, you just had to get, get the to, feral hogs We're going to get to it, guys. We're going to get to it. Don't worry. I just want to tease you that you know the hogs are coming. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with their tusks. Um, so this week, the Trump administration labeled China a currency manipulator in response to China devaluing its currency, which was largely a measure to offset the pain of tariffs that the U.S. had uh, imposed on, or that President Trump had imposed on a number of Chinese exports. He's now threatening to basically tariff everything uh, that comes into the United States from China. China has also said that it's going to stop buying all U.S. agricultural products. Quick reminder that China does not pay the tariff. The companies that import the goods pay the tariff. Um, <clears throat> but we're sort of – we're more than sort of. We are in an escalating trade war with China. Uh, in this latest uh, – 
uh, round of it, I think, has people maybe a bit more freaked out than usual. Certainly, the markets are plummeting in response to this because I think you know the markets understand where this thing is heading in terms of the trade relationship. But Tammy, it, it points to a much bigger question, I think, in all this, which is that if Americans didn't realize this before, um, we're not really the only global power anymore. China has enormous capacity and resources to challenge us, right? To go head to, to go toe to toe with us on this, and it seems like the trade war is—I don't want to see a microcosm because it's bigger than a micro—but it is pointing up to this reality of the U.S.-Chinese relationship that we may have to get used to the idea that you know there's another superpower on the block. Um, the Chinese think in very, very long terms, and it seems like the president's playing a short game. This relationship has fundamentally changed in a lot of ways, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the relationship has fundamentally changed. I think that the emergence of China as a global power, I wouldn't necessarily call it a superpower. And I would say that its power capabilities are very uneven across the military, political and economic domains. But we are certainly seeing China increase its capabilities in each of those domains and express, manifest those capabilities in new ways. So whether we're talking about, you know, islands in the South China Sea or Chinese development loans to African countries or trade practices with the United States and other major global trading partners, there is a difference in Chinese behavior as China has become stronger. It's more aggressive. It is seeking more advantage. What I think is interesting about the Trump administration's approach is that, you know, if you go back to the national security strategy that was released when General McMaster was still our national security advisor, that feels like a decade ago already, um, that described China as a strategic competitor, that put this economic competition into a broader context. Um, you know, thinking about uh, freedom of navigation and thinking about China's blue water navy and its ability to project force around the world. In a way, what the Trump administration is doing, even on the economic competition, feels like small ball because, yes, China's manipulating the value of its currency. Yes, China is seeking advantage in terms of relative market access and openness. But the real issues in fundamental U.S.-China economic competition and cooperation are that China insists that U.S. tech companies transfer technology and it spies on those companies to steal their proprietary intellectual property when they engage in business in China, um, that China is basically making investments as well in technology uh, advances and other things that will make it more able to compete more successfully against the American economy and especially the American tech industry in years to come. And the advantages that it insists upon in dealing with American companies only magnify um, their ability to seize that platform. And this is what the Trump administration is not really doing anything to address. It's talking about soybeans. It's talking about pork. It's not talking about the future of artificial intelligence. It's not talking about the way American tech companies are coerced into disadvantageous relations doing business in China. So, Ben, you made a defense of the president a minute ago. Make the defense now that we're <laughs> <laughs> nah, in this coming. He's not going to do that. Was <laughs> uh, our resident Trumpist, yeah, Ben. Yeah, you setting me up as a defender of the president, Shane? <laughs> this week. Only this week. Okay. I will say a number of people have made the observation that everything that 
Some people said say. It's true. So a lot of people are saying <laughs> uh, everything that Sammy said is true. But we were going to reach a point eventually where we had to start confronting China, whether it was on IP theft, forced technology transfer, unfair trade practices, the whole, the whole mess of it. So is there something to be said in defense of the president for – Take it, which to be clear, we don't know where this fight is going, but you know, really taking it to them and saying we are not backing down from you this time, and we're prepared to do drastic things until you until you change your behavior. Yes, um, I think there's a lot to be said in defense of the president in uh, confronting China. There is nothing to be said in defense of the president for confronting China in a way that is incoherent and strategically uh, muddled and unclear in terms of what we are trying to get out of it. And, um, you know, it's unclear to me from listening to the president over a long period of time whether his fundamental concern is the trade deficit with China, which is, by the way, in my view, not a serious concern. I don't I don't actually care if we have a trade deficit with China. It seems like most economists probably don't either. I think that's right. I, yeah. I think, you they know. They think it's good for American consumers. Right. Um, it's, not, know, it's not high on the list of Look, of the, I, the idea that, that China, we should be buying a lot of products manufactured in China given uh, the relative costs of labor in the country is, is, is obvious actually. And so the idea that there should be some trade imbalance doesn't trouble me particularly. Uh, the idea that they should be uh, stealing large amounts of U.S. intellectual property, that they should be gaming the international trade system the way they are and that we should have no response to it is much more troubling. And the belligerent activity that they engage in with respect to other countries uh, and territory, the territorial seas in, that are adjacent to them or non-territorial seas in what we call international waters and they call, call territorial seas is uh, very troubling. And so I, I actually think it is a good thing to have an administration that wants to take seriously confronting China. I wish that I just wish I knew, understood what they meant by it. And I do think what they are they're very excited about great power conflict and they're trying to but they're not even talking about this in terms of great power conflict well, well the, the president isn't the overall tone of what they're saying is we can hurt your economy more than you can hurt ours and that is a very school playground kind of taunt to be issued between the two greatest powers in the world. It's my button is bigger than your button. It's very much Which, that. to be clear, the president thinks worked in the North Korea context, so he might have reason to think that it's going to work this time. Yeah, although in the North Korea context, there's no <clears throat> evidence that it actually did work right. at all. In his all, mind, it's working great, though. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. I, I mean, again, I, you know, I can't even sort of pretend to understand the machinations of sort of trade policy, you know, the specifics. I still am counting this on my fingers a little bit. You know, that said, I, I do do think we're seeing Trump behave in the same troubling way that we've seen him behave in in a lot of contexts, and that's abusing executive discretion and spending down U.S. credibility 
by doing things like declaring someone a currency manipulator, even in circumstances in which it's not clear that the evidence supports that, declaring, you know, steel imports from Canada to be a national security threat, even whenever there's actually not evidence to support that. And so we're sort of we're, we're seeing him erode and spend down this credibility across lots of different contexts. And, and to me, that does look like the same worrying trend in which you really have to wonder, you know, not just what Donald Trump's word means, which is nothing, but what the United States government word is is going to mean moving forward. Yeah, I actually think that's that is getting to a key point, which is that if if we're really thinking about China as a great power competitor to the United States in kind of grand global strategic terms, then what's important for the United States to do is to to rally together other states that are concerned about the way in which China is growing and exercising its power and create a set of constraints on Chinese behavior through that coalition. And actually, given the extent to which China is integrated into global supply chains, there's a lot of leverage by which to do that if we're working in concert with other countries. But if we're picking trade fights with Canada and Mexico and Europe and Japan and South Korea at the same time that we're picking trade fights with China, then we can't actually do that. We can't actually confront what Chinese trade practices mean, which is China as an aggressively rising power. I I really agree with that. I mean, I think you have to pick your battles right now. And if you if you imagine as the United States that you have a geostrategic confrontation with China that is taking place right now through the venue of trade, you would want, say, the European Union to be on your side in that conversation. And yet Trump is seems to be as upset by the very small trade deficit with the EU, which is, I don't know, it's a hundred plus billion dollars, but it's a small fraction of the Chinese one as he is about the Chinese trade deficit. And so it's, it's a really big piece of this is just the inability to prioritize and, and the inability to sort of figure out what your strategic priorities are. I do think for purposes of this podcast listenership, there's an issue I want to put on the table about this, which is if you are the Chinese Communist Party right now and you are heading into an election year in the United States and you really don't like the current government and you are using your trade powers as a way of responding, you don't want to do what the Russians did and get caught with some gestalt intervention in the election but you do want to make life difficult for people who are supporting Donald Trump, what are the levers you are going to pull that are effectively electoral interference that, are, that take place in the context of this, uh, of this trade fight? So the example that I'm thinking of here is what the Europeans did earlier on targeting uh, Kentucky bourbon. Uh, it's an important question, seeing as we have some sitting here on the, the table here in the jungle studio. But so if you're China and you want to hurt Donald Trump and your leverage right now is trade stuff, what do you do over the next few months that really hurts his base? 
Well, because I, mean, argue, because like, I think that's that's what they're going to be thinking. I would about. I, mean, I would argue that they've actually already done it by letting him do it for them. They I mean, started. he's the one who he who imposed the tariffs that led to retaliations on not export or not China not importing agricultural products that disproportionately hit his base. The manufacturing sector gets hit by this. You know, four hundred one ks are going down. Right, as but, we speak. but these people, but these people are are smart. And they, they are not unsavvy about U.S. politics. And so they're thinking as this thing ramps up, ramp it up in a way that minimally hurts coastal elites who – so you don't anger the people who are going to vote against Trump anyway. You do anger the people, his base. And I, I do think we have to think about it in those terms because that's the terms in which they're going to be thinking about it. I mean one thing we did talk early on that's actually interesting to think that it really hasn't come to pass is foreign governments actually not acting against the Trump organization or Trump assets abroad in order to sort of inflict those same pain points. That's something that way back when he was – First elected, we sort of talked about, you know, are we going to start seeing? We certainly have seen foreign governments attempting to use Trump's business interests to curry favor. We haven't really seen the flip side of that. It's of, like them stopping of, Ivanka selling her jewelry. Exactly, line in China. trying to sort of start inflicting pain. And um, I, I don't have a larger observation other than just, you know, it's, it's actually interesting that that, you know, certainly the um, trying to court him has come to pass, but actually trying to punish him and uh, whether or not it's the, sort of the larger. Part of the watch stove. this space. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Speaking of spaces to watch, uh, we alluded to the situation in Syria being at a kind of critical juncture for the U.S. Uh, Turkey has announced its intention to move forces and create a security corridor, whether we cooperate with them or not. So, Tammy, explain to people briefly what we're talking about here in terms of security corridor and why it matters that we – work with the Turks on this and why it matters if we don't and what happens. Yeah. So cast your minds back, listeners, to a phone call between Turkish President Erdogan and President Trump last December, uh, after which President Trump announced by tweet that the United States was going to be withdrawing its military forces from Syria. This was the precipitating event for Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis's resignation because that tweet was made without consulting with him or with our allies who were fighting alongside us on the ground in Syria. So where we are today is that Erdogan thought at that moment he had won an agreement from Donald Trump that he, Erdogan, would be able to send Turkish troops into northern Syria and establish essentially a a, a cordon sanitaire for the Turks that would keep Kurdish fighters away from the Turkish border. Now, when the United States went to fight ISIS in Syria, it set up as its primary counter-ISIS partner on the ground, the Kurdish YPG militia. Uh, the Kurdish YPG is seen by the Turks and, and um, pra- as a practical matter, does have very close connections to uh, the Turkish-Kurdish terrorist group, the PKK. And so the Turks are bound and determined to keep the YPG away from their border. And up until this point, it's been the United States that has um, kind of held the line separating Kurdish forces and the Turkish border. Now, the Turks understand that the United States wants to leave, that the, the Syrian civil war is beginning to wind down and the Damascus government is trying to retake control over 
as much as it can of Syrian territory, and that the YPG is trying to establish its own autonomous zone in northeastern Syria, and the Turks are bound and determined to make sure their own interests are secured. The other thing that's going on is that there's a huge number of Syrian refugees who've been in Turkey for the last number of years, and now that the Turkish economy is starting to starting to decline, Turkey is increasingly interested in pushing those Syrians back into Syria. So here's the challenge. If the United States gets out of the way and lets Turkey move into northern Syria and establish a security zone that would extend into what's currently Kurdish-held territory, the Turks would go after the YPG, our putative allies, and the U.S. would not be there to protect them. The YPG, for their part, are guarding camps full of former ISIS fighters and the families of former ISIS fighters. These are from third countries that do not want them back, and nobody knows what to do with these guys, hundreds and hundreds of them. And so the YPG would probably quit guarding these camps in order to protect themselves from the Turks, and these ISIS fighters would go back into the field. So the entire victory of the U.S. together with the YPG and others to defeat ISIS in Syria would be at risk. Clearly, then, there are very high stakes for the United States in achieving some kind of agreement with the Turks on how this security zone is going to work. There was a Defense Department delegation in uh, Turkey to meet with the Turkish military um, over the last couple of days, and they put out like a three-sentence statement at the conclusion of these talks. The delegations agreed on the following. The rapid implementation of initial measures to address Turkey's security concerns, i.e. the YPG. Two, to stand up a joint operations center in Turkey as soon as possible to coordinate and manage the establishment of the safe zone together, i.e. we still haven't agreed on what the safe zone is and we have to keep talking about it. Three, that the safe zone shall become a peace corridor. Don't you love that? And every effort shall be made so that displaced Syrians can return to their country. In other words, okay, Turkey, we're going to demilitarize this safe zone so that you can push Syrian refugees back into Syria. But Ben, I thought that A, we defeated ISIS and B, all of our troops were coming home. This sounds like our troops probably won't be coming home and that all the guys who could reconstitute ISIS are basically about to be sprung if we don't do something. It doesn't sound at all like what, what I was what's, promised. What's the matter, Shane? Are you tired of winning? <laughs> <laughs> Too much winning. Hundred day plan to defeat ISIS. I mean, this is. I mean, it's. it's we, I know we get overloaded in the news, but I mean, the situation that you're describing here, Tammy. I mean, this is, this is kind of a. a this is very much a make or break kind of moment, and it doesn't seem like. The administration seem, seems particularly engaged on what's about to happen here. It doesn't seem like President Trump still thinks there's an ISIS fight to worry about. Right, right. Well, it actually leads to a very interesting kind of process question in my mind, which is how much is the president of the United States aware of this situation? I mean, he clearly doesn't seem to be that engaged on it. But I mean, we've said this, I mean, a hundred times now on the podcast, wouldn't ordinarily your national security advisor uh, be advising you of these things? Wouldn't your defense secretary, which we, I think we now finally do have one, uh, be making this clear? Or are we just not seeing it? No, I think you're you're making an assumption that may be correct for normal government, but is clearly counterfactual in this era, which is you're assuming that anybody wants to own a situation uh, over any period of time other than the moment at which it is most successful. And so, you know, Donald Trump comes into office. 
having bashed not one, not two, but all of his recent predecessors, you know, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama on their handling of this broad constellation of stuff. And he says, we're going to smash ISIS. And he has no idea how to think about what happens after that, except that to the extent that he said anything about it, it's we're going to take the oil and leave, right? That was his kind of plan. Smash ISIS, take the oil, go home. Well, Jim Mattis gave him one component of that, which is I have a plan to smash ISIS. So they did the smashing part. And then he tried to do, he didn't try to do the take the oil part, but he did actually try to do the leave part, right? And this is what triggered Mattis's and Brett McGurk's early resignations. So he actually tried to do something that looked like more or less what he had promised to smash ISIS and get the hell out. That that falls apart. And so now he's got the part where, as Tammy points out, he's got to actually figure out what a longer term governance engagement between the United States and this region looks like. He's not interested in the question. He has no idea what the answer to the question is. And by the way, the answer to the question is a super hard one. Uh, and he doesn't like super hard questions. And here's where I think his animal cunning comes in. He does understand that he's past the point now where you only get to claim good things, right? There was smashing ISIS was good uh, and made him look good. But now it comes to the point where things will start to get worse again because you have to make choices and uh, they will – those choices – involve giving up important things. They involve bad outcomes sometimes. And so he wants nothing to do with that process. And he wants to be as disengaged as possible so that other people take responsibility for the next phase, which isn't going to look as good as the last phase. I mean, I do think that there is one thing worth pointing out, and that's the extent to which this administration uh, has completely short-circuited the process of democratic accountability here by just not having press conferences anymore. DOD doesn't do press conferences anymore. They don't do on-camera press conferences, and that goes all the way back to Jim Mattis. The White House just doesn't do press briefings. Like, we all were outraged about it for a while, but then everyone was just like, well, I guess that's not a thing anymore. The State and Department promised they were going to start doing press briefings again. Tick, tick. Right? Like waiting, (laughs) waiting, waiting. And actually, like, it turned out to be a pretty savvy political maneuver for the White House and for this administration because, gosh, in really complex, emerging situations, they don't have to answer questions. And yes, it's allowed them to outlast any number of scandal and, and all sorts of things. But whenever we're talking about what the United States is doing with American forces abroad, putting American troops in danger, spending huge amounts of money. I mean, this is the core stuff that we need a press corps to be asking questions and getting answers. And and it's really astonishing how this one move and just sort of refusal to budge on on agreeing to this norm it really does leave us in a position in which all we can do is sit around here and speculate and guess and look at statements put out by the Joint Chiefs on Twitter or the U.S. Embassy Turkey on Twitter and sort of try and read the tea leaves and say, well, shucks, I hope there's somebody who cares and knows what's going on because it seems like kind of a big deal. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And I think the broader policy problem there, I mean, beyond public accountability, which is bigger in many ways, but 
But, um, you know, we've talked for years about the problem of playing whack-a-mole with Islamist terrorists and that even if we, quote unquote, defeated ISIS in Syria um, in 2018, they could reconstitute. And of course, that was the danger of a precipitous withdrawal like the one that Trump attempted last winter. The problem here is not even that okay, if we leave and we're not investing in stable governance, the way you were talking about, Ben, that they might reconstitute, this is like an immediate problem, is that the the people on the ground who have been fighting ISIS are going to stop fighting ISIS. And they are going to let all these guys out of supervised, controlled environments and back into Syria. It could reignite the civil war. It could reconstitute a territorial base for ISIS. This could happen really quickly. And so if kind of the background problem of the last dozen years has been, well, how do we withdraw without having to go back and fight five years from now? What Trump has done with this capricious approach and this lack of consideration is put us in a situation where we might not even finish withdrawing before we have to go back in. Ben, China's not going to have to do anything. We're going to be in a recession, and ISIS is going to be running all over Syria again by the time of the election. There you go. That would, Cheery. Cheery <clears throat> that would, that you, would do it. Um, all right. Let's move on to object lessons. Uh, ben, why don't you go first? So I am sipping Bunahaben 12-year. Yeah, the Scotch. Bunahaben sounds That's what you've been drinking today, too. But I've been sipping it out of a mug, and the mug – is uh, my object lesson. A few weeks ago, when Susan and I were first chatting about this idea of doing the report podcast, she floated this uh, idea of actually teaming up with an actual podcast production company because she knew something that I hope listeners of Rational Security haven't really figured out yet, which is that we're kind of amateurs at this. Um, And, you know, like... That's where they love us, This is the well-oiled machine, folks. Yeah, exactly. Um, Our garage band cred is intact. (laughs) Um, And so uh, she came up with uh, this uh, idea of reaching out to these folks at the improbably named company Goat Rodeo. It's not a name that inspires confidence. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And yet the Goat Rodeo folks have been our partners on, on the report. Uh, we've had a great time working with them, and I think the report sounds genuinely fabulous. Infinitely better than this podcast. <laughs> Infinitely better than, than, than we do here. And they gave us mugs. They, did. they gave us Goat Rodeo mugs. And so I just wanted to give a shout-out to the Goat Rodeo people and take a sip of, of, of Bunahaben out of the Goat Rodeo mug. Oh, that's very, very nice. good. Very good. Here, here. Uh, Tammy, you want to give your object? Sure. So we were talking about how hard it is to get information from what's actually going on in these Middle Eastern conflicts on the ground. And so my object this week is an amazing project, a, a new book that just was released yesterday called Our Women on the Ground, Essays by Arab Women Reporting from the Arab World. And it's a collection 
of essays by 19 Arab women journalists who have been doing reporting in Syria, in Yemen, in conflict zones across the region, talking about the challenges of being a female reporter in these environments, you know, things like trying to travel around Yemen without a male relative to act as your guardian, but also the insights, the unique insights that they get as fluent Arabic speakers as um, people with a native eye talking to women affected by these conflicts, living in the midst of these conflicts, the the kinds of insights that it's really, really hard for war reporters to get. And I, I have to say that it's a, a bizarre but beautiful outgrowth of the horrific breakdown in the region that I study over the last decade, that there has been a flowering of journalism in this region and a lot of great female author journalism. And this anthology, to me, is also a great corrective to the fact that so much of what Americans understand about the Middle East is written by American reporters with an American perspective. So just a shout out uh, to this book. It's edited by Zahra Hankir. It's got a forward by Christiana Manpour. Um, it's got women in it that you know, like Rula Khalaf from the Financial Times and women that you've never heard of before. And you should definitely go and check it out. Great. Um, so feral hogs are my object. <laughs> how, how many feral hogs? From the sublime to the ridiculous. 30 to 50, isn't it? 30 to 50. Ask me about my interaction with a not feral hog the other day before you're finished. So, so my object lesson I'm bringing this up because I thought people understood the problem with feral hogs, which is a real problem. I mean, <clears throat> to I'm back sorry, it up for a second. Explain this to me. It's a real thing. It's a very real thing. If you are a corn farmer or any kind of farmer in regions of the country where feral hogs run wild, if you are a forester, if you manage tracts of land, feral hogs rip up crops. They destroy tens of thousands of dollars in crops on single farms. They are vicious as mm, they will come at you, the feral hogs. They are a real problem. They, they are, are like a massive problem in the state of Hawaii. Wait, but explain to our less online listeners okay. what so the hell we're talking why, about. And why. If you don't like Twitter and you like something like Feral Hogs, okay. So Jason Isbell, the musician, tweets in response to the shootings this week. Uh, if you're on here, meaning Twitter, talking about needing an assault rifle, essentially you're full of it. There is no use for one and you know it. And then someone responds with genuine question. What about the assault rifle I need to fend off my yard and my children from the feral hogs? To the which 30 to 50 feral hogs that come in my yard with my small children. When my children are playing. Now, I'm going to put aside whether or not the feral hogs are actually going after his children. I'm a little skeptical of that. However... When I saw that tweet, my reaction was like, well, yeah, that is why people have assault rifles out in the country a lot of times is because of the feral hogs. And like half of Twitter was like hysterical laughing, I mean, like thinking he was just pulling some random example out of thin air about feral hogs. And I'm like, no, like that's like I have people in my family who are pro Second Amendment who agree you should get rid of assault rifles except for being able to kill feral hogs. But then somebody I, I told just thought me everyone understood the feral hog problem. But then someone told me you have to blow them up. Like you can't <clears throat> even tough. shoot blow them. Up. They're tough. Blow them? This is a whole new world They're for tough. Me. Go on YouTube and Google feral hog helicopter. I don't, I don't want to. So I have never dealt with a feral hog. Well, but the other day, lucky. Tammy and I were on the coast of California. And uh, the hotel we were staying in had a pet pig that was quite large and came over to say hello to me. 
And it wasn't feral, but man, it was a huge, hairy, slobbery. And it was delicious. It was was extremely friendly. Um, And uh, it. it, uh, We'll make the slaughtering that. But I just want to say if that animal were feral and came charging at you, it would be terrifying. Terrifying. And it was large and strong enough that when it uh, pushed up against my leg, which it did to say hello, I could not maintain my footing. I had to, I had to move. It's a strong animal. Now imagine 30 to 50 of those with tusks. Running at your babies. <laughs> Get your it, guns. That's what it's so dingoes. I'm not even going to explain that reference. You'll we'll just have to get it. It was a nice note of sort yeah. of carnival internet it was unity carnival, in what yeah. was a very dark week. Yeah. And to be yeah. clear, I'm not advocating that you need assault rifles for anything. I'm just saying I thought everyone knew about the feral hogs. But, you know, what do I know? Why I do guess, you hate feral hogs, Shane? I mean, trust me. They are not your friend. And they're probably not even good eating. <sighs> well, I'm going to just bring an end to the feral hogs. But first, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Rational security is, of course, a, project, a projection of lawfare. <laughs> that, too. A projection of lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can get a rational security feral pig at lawfarepigstore.org. That's exactly correct. I'm not going to correct it. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps people find the podcast, and we're very appreciative. Our audio engineer this week was Vishnu Kanan. The show was produced and edited by Jen Patti Howell. Music this week, I'm not proud of this. I'm really not proud. <laughs> this is so dumb. Uh, Xi Jinping with his new version of Chubby Checker's Limbo Rock. Oh. Hello, Kiko. <laughs> All right. Okay. It's a little strange. Bad. Listeners cannot see Shane's beaming face right now. It's so he bad. Says, it's good. He says he's not proud of it, but he's so proud of it. <laughs> I could have gone easy with he's a like, hog. He's like a feral hog. Oh, God. Oink, oink. Uh, sorry, Sophia Yan. <laughs> On behalf of my good friend Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamar Kaufman-Bettis, we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.